1214, Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. I, I always say that I, I enjoy doing this job a great deal. As a matter of fact, I love doing this job. And on a typical day, I, I love waiting for the opportunity to come in here and turn on the microphone and talk to you. Then there are days like today where I just, I, I dread it is not the right word, but I just, it's tough to find words to describe days like today where you have tragedies involving in this case the the death of a 17 year veteran of the Milwaukee Police Department uh, a 52 year old man killed just for doing his job by what the police chief described as, as one of the 10 percenters one of the these chronic career criminals who plagues the city of Milwaukee and other urban areas throughout the country um, we're going to talk about a number of different aspects of this. As I mentioned yesterday, we're we're doing something a little different. Starting today, we are going to be, uh, I guess, I don't know, simulcasting the program. We're going to be streaming the program on Facebook Live. So if you go to our Facebook page, you will be able to see us, and you can participate in the program in that way as well. We're going to do this on a daily basis. Uh, as I said, the police chief described the suspect in this case who has not been charged, but they're naming him, a guy named Jonathan Copeland. In the moments since they named him, I was able to access the, the guy's criminal record. The chief said he had an extensive juvenile record, an excessive, extensive adult record. I, I can tell you this. He's 31 years old, 2006, convicted of burglary and fleeing police. I don't know if there's something before that. There probably is. Then uh, dealing cocaine and fleeing police. And uh, for that, he, he did several years in prison. He's out on parole. He was charged, at least according to what it appears on Wisconsin Circuit Court access records, he was charged with uh, possession with intent to distribute heroin in May, and there was a written arrest warrant that had been issued. So presumably he had been a fugitive since May. He's also somebody who was wanted for parole violations, etc., we now know yesterday the police received information that he was at a particular residence. The police chief talks about how the officers go out to that residence as part of the investigation. He runs into the house. They follow him into the house. And the, the way it's been described to me is the defendant just kind of treats it like the, it's the Wild West. He just pulls out a gun and starts shooting and the police are, are able to subdue him when he runs out of ammunition. Unfortunately and tragically, one of the Milwaukee police officers was hit in the barrage of bullets, and now Copeland is taken into custody. And for the second time in a shockingly brief period of time, you have a Milwaukee police officer deceased as a result of simply doing his job. There are many aspects of this story to discuss, and we're going to cover it and talk to you about a number of those different aspects in just a moment. As I say, we are up on Facebook Live, so if you go to our Facebook page, 620WTMJ.com, you can stream us on Facebook and see. You can participate that way. We're going to talk about many, many aspects, including who wants to be a Milwaukee police officer nowadays? This just underscores how difficult this job is. What was this guy doing out on the street? How do we get these 10 percenters off the street and keep them off the street and many more aspects? We'll talk about it all in just a moment. It's 1218. This is Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. It's 1220, Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. If you're just joining us, uh, Milwaukee Police Chief Alfonso Morales just conducted a press conference where he 
went through the details of what happened with the officer shooting yesterday. Um, officer Michael Mahowski, who was a 20-year veteran with the city of Milwaukee, 17 years with the Milwaukee Police Department, 52 years old. He is part of the Police Department's Special Investigation Division. This is the, the group of officers whose task is to go try to identify the the worst of the worst the the what the chief was describing is the 10%ers the the 10% of the criminal population who commits the overwhelming majority of crimes and if you look at the criminal record of the suspect in this case Jonathan Copeland you understand why he fell into that 10%er category numerous apparently juvenile contacts I was just running a quick check of his record, conviction for burglary, conviction for dealing cocaine, fleeing officers, charged in May with uh, drug dealing while out on parole. And apparently what happened yesterday is the unit had gotten a tip or information that he was at this particular residence. They go over to the place. They go to the door. He runs into the house, grabs a gun and comes out shooting indiscriminately and ends up hitting Officer Mahowski, killing him. He's taken into custody after he runs out of bullets, essentially. But this is a guy who should not have been on the street, and the Special Investigation Division was trying to get him off the street. There, There's a number of different ways we can go in this conversation, but as I often do in situations where there is just a, a wide-scale interest in unfortunately a very very tragic matter rather than trying to direct the conversation i've got some specific questions to ask but at times i like to open up our phone lines for just sort of an electric electronic town hall because i think there's a number of different ways that you can go on you know this particular issue and I, our number, 414-799-1620, that is the Acunet Mortgage talk and text line. Your reaction to what happened yesterday, second Milwaukee police officer in just the last couple months who's lost his life in the line of duty. In this case, police officer doing his job, responding, trying to get a high-risk criminal off the streets. Lots of different areas to go. Why was the guy on the street? Would anybody, you know, does anybody want to be a police officer nowadays? If you watch the television coverage yesterday afternoon, after this was initially um, coming to the fore, you saw some members of the community who were upset at the police department because they weren't being allowed into their houses. Now, that that was a situation that ultimately was diffused. But again, it was like that the crowd is agitated in some respects as the police officers are investigating this. So any direction you want to take this, it's just it is a tragic day, which underscores how dangerous it is on a daily basis to be a law enforcement officer. It's one of the reasons I always rail when I hear these terms. Oh, it's a routine traffic stop. Nothing is a routine situation. 414-799-1620. That's the Accident Mortgage Talk and Text Line. And if you'd like to see how we do this, we are live streaming this segment of the program. Simply go to Facebook.com slash 620WTMJ. 414-799-1620. Let's start with Jim in Mequon. Jim, you're first. Good afternoon. Uh, thanks for taking my call. Yes, sir. Uh, just want to say it's a super sad day. Um, I know a lot of MPD officers. I'm not one myself, but um, I think, sadly, this is coming to a head based on the inaction that the previous chiefs and even the, the mayor's office is, has kind of covered up the, the crime here based on not proactively looking for it. And finally, we have a chief 
and Chief Morales to if this if this guy does not get after his two years is not back in there, it's a crime in mm-hmm. itself. But finally, we have a chief who's proactively looking for these thugs again. We got to take care of this this city and clean this city up. So I, I think we're going to probably have some more pains going through this as he's doing this and getting these ten percenters. Um, but this is something that should have been done a long time ago. Finally, he's stepping up and doing it. Yeah, thanks for calling, mean, Jim. I, I guess I it's too soon to kind of point fingers and all, but I mean, this does underscore, and I, I think a lot of us, you, me, I think a lot of people in the police department, unfortunately, perhaps not enough people in the district attorney's office, and certainly not enough people in the court system, have realized that this is a problem and has been a problem for the longest time. The truth of the matter is, most people, in the city of Milwaukee, in Milwaukee County, in the state of Wisconsin, are honest, law-abiding citizens. Doesn't matter your race, doesn't matter your ethnicity, most people are law-abiding citizens. The problem we have is that you have a subset, a small subset of what I describe as the criminal class, and they are people that are undeterred by they're, they're essentially not capable of being reformed they are undeterred by criminal con, uh, consequences and they are out there terrorizing and plaguing the community and it, it's those people that you need to get off the streets and, and yes if that means mass incarceration so be it it's mass incarceration if that means warehousing dangerous people yes you've got to warehouse dangerous people because you know these are the consequences this is what happened today it's a Milwaukee yesterday it was a Milwaukee police officer but you know on, on any given Tuesday it could be some average citizen who runs afoul of one of these people and, and this this is what the wake up call has to be 414 799 let's talk to um let's see let's go to Tim and Franklin Tim you're on WTMJ Hey hi Tim yeah, good afternoon good afternoon you know couple couple of things Jeff it's part of the revolving door it's part of your right if it's standing room only in these jails I don't care and then you got the liberals campaigning for governor on prison reform and let's yeah, let, let's up. let let's let yeah. half of the prison population right. out of jail oh my goodness yeah. yes 80% of these people 80 to 90% of these people in prison are violent Felons, okay. Or repeat violent or repeat felons. criminals or either right. career criminals or violent. Absolutely. Or both. Exactly. Right. You know, but it, you're right. Exactly. Is this the subculture, the subset of what's what's going on there? But when you have soft on crime DAs, Jeff, and soft on crime judges, and they never look out for the victim, we look out for the suspect in our society all the time. And I'm, I'll ask you a question. I want to get your take on this and see what your thoughts are. Jeff, I think if we federalize gun crimes like attempted murder, armed robbery, strong-arm robbery with a gun, whatever, I think it'd be a mandatory 10-year federal sentence. I think if we start federally sentencing these guys, I think because right now, Jeff, they go back to prison, it's almost like a cakewalk for them. They know everybody in there. The guards know my first name. And the cops are simply arresting the same guys all the time. Oh, and, and because- the, yeah, and, and they'll, I mean, thanks for calling. And, and, and thanks for calling. And people will tell you that, and that's what the, the frustration you'll hear from rank and file police officers. Now, we do have federal laws about, for example, it, it's a federal crime for you know a felon to be in possession of a firearm. Uh, drug dealing is a federal crime if you use a firearm while you're dealing drugs that adds a mandatory five-year enhancer the problem is 
the, the U.S. Attorney's Office, and I worked in the U.S. Attorney's Office a long time ago, the U.S. Attorney's Office is limited. There's limited federal resources. So to concentrate on the worst of the worst, I'm all in favor of that. I, I think what's got to happen, though, if you look at it from a resource perspective, is there needs to be an awakening among the Milwaukee County judges and the state judges that this is a problem. And maybe the legislature needs to stick in, work in. I would be all in favor of mandatory minimum penalties, for example, for felons who get caught with guns. I don't care where you are on the gun rights issue and the Second Amendment. I think all of us agree that if you are a criminal, you should not have a gun. And if you get caught with it, well, all right, we're going to send you to prison and maybe a three-year mandatory minimum term would kick in. All right, we're back with more calls in just a moment. It's 1229. 1238, Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. Milwaukee Brewers, the trade deadline is coming up. Milwaukee Brewers have reportedly made a trade. They've acquired a 34-year-old reliever. Hakeem, is that it? Joaquim Soria from the Chicago White Sox in exchange. He was he was their closer in exchange for a um, couple minor league players. A guy who was uh, pitching in Biloxi is the principal uh, principal in the deal. So we'll have more detail, details about that. Right now we're talking about this horrible story. Yesterday, for the second time in a couple months now, you have a Milwaukee police officer who's lost his life in the line of duty. I think everybody knows the story by now. The officer, an experienced veteran, part of the Special Investigation Division. This is the the task force that is out there in an effort to try to get the worst of the worst, the career criminals, the habitual criminals, off the streets. Unfortunately, you get them off the streets and the revolving door criminal justice system puts them back on the streets too soon. The officers roll up to a location where the guy is. He sees him. He runs into his house, grabs a gun, and apparently starts shooting indiscriminately, hits and kills one of the officers. The man that is identified as being the shooter is a guy named Jonathan Copeland, who has a 31 years old, has a criminal record as long as your arm or my arm. He was out on parole for a drug dealing and a felony fleeing charge as a prior record before that the police chief said he has a juvenile record uh they had issued a new charges against him a criminal complaint was issued in may against him and so the police were trying to apprehend him based on that criminal complaint when all this happened let's talk to rain in mount pleasant rain you're on wtmj hello hey jeff thanks for having me on the show yes sir thank you for calling all right. Uh, yeah. So as I told your call screener, I think that what we have is a macro problem that we see in Milwaukee through the symptoms of these horrible tragedies. Um, it's something that we ignore and that we just kind of sweep under the rug and don't address. I hear you. You know, I listen to your show all the time and your solution is, you know, lock up. And, you know, we do have a revolving door criminal system. But the problem doesn't start when they commit the crimes. It starts, you know, in their childhood. It starts later on once they start having a brush with the law, the government. And the problem doesn't get solved. And it's just getting worse and worse, and the cancer grows and grows. And we see it in Milwaukee, in our community, one of the best and one of the worst in the country. Well, I guess I'm a, little bit un- I'm a little bit unclear on your point. If, if, if your point is 
We need to have more social programs or more employment or whatever to stop people from turning to crime. I, I, that's, I have no issue well, with that. I'm, I would even take issue with the word more. It's, it's something that needs to be done and needs to be done differently. But I'd, I mean, that, that's the, the low side. I mean, that's the focus. That's where, where it's happening, and that's where we're failing. I mean, I don't have the answer. I don't know what needs to be done, but I know and I see people aren't even actually looking at the problem. They're just looking at these symptoms that are further away from that low side. Well, and, and Teddy, Rain, thanks for the call. I mean, here, here's where I would, I guess, here, here's what my response would be. I, if you can give me, I mean, the solutions to, the solutions to stopping people from turning to crime, that, that's, that's a very difficult thing. It's, it's keeping kids, I mean, we, we know this, it's keeping kids out of gangs. It's keeping kids in school. It is in many cases, you know, intact two parent families. It's employment opportunities. It's all those different types of things. And I, I think, you know, that's always going to be an ongoing challenge. And I guess I, I leave it to people a lot smarter than me to figure out how to deal with those things. I, I'm just a simple guy though. And, and I do know that once people make that decision to turn to crime, at that point in time, I think you, you need to start dropping the hammer. If you can work out some program or some way to figure out how to rehabilitate somebody when they come out of prison, all right, that, that's fine. I don't have a problem with that. But when you have these, these, these 10 percenters that we're talking about, the 10 percent of the criminal population that commits the vast majority of crimes, to me, the answer, and I understand that there's some of the, the social justice people out there that hate it, but my answer is you've got to warehouse them because at some point in time, People become career criminals. Now, obviously, if you can stop them from sticking a gun in somebody's face at the age of 15 and carjacking them, I'm all in favor of that. Yes, right, figure out a way to do that. But the flip side is, on the as we were talking about, on the back end, once you reach a certain point where you are continuing to commit crimes with firearms in many cases, you get out of prison, you're back doing the same darn thing. At some point in time, I think we need to say enough is enough. And at that point in time, you say, all right, this is who we're going to put you in prison. And if you can figure out, maybe at some point in time, if we put you in prison long enough, maybe you'll age out of the crime. Maybe you'll reach a certain point in your life where you get old enough that you decide, hey, you know, being a career criminal and sticking gun in people's guns in people's faces is a younger man's game or a younger woman's game, younger man's game, and maybe we, we won't do it. Or, but at some point in time, I think we have to protect society, and that's where I think we are failing when it comes to these hardcore criminals who should not be out on the street. I applaud the police chief, and I applaud the rank-and-file Milwaukee police officers and officers. I don't mean to just single out MPD. We're talking about MPD because of what happened yesterday. But these are people who put their lives on the line every day. They do not get the recognition that they deserve. Everybody is quick to criticize the police for this, that, or the other thing. Everybody is quick to second-guess. But yesterday's developments you know, underscore the danger that the men and women of the Milwaukee Police Department and every police department across this country face on a daily basis. 414-799-1620. Carol in Racine. Carol, you're on WTMJ. Hello. Hi. Um, I, I told your, your... Producer, yep. Yeah. The problem is I have a cousin who was a police cop. I have a dear friend who was who was a they're both retired cops and the one thing that they said 
many times was they didn't even want to go to court, you know, take them to court because the judges would slap their hands and send them on their way. Yeah. No, it, and it, it, I yeah. think, I think they, and then the judges say, well, you know, we have no choice. This is the way the law is. Then do something about changing the law so that they can give stiffer fines or, or, well, it, it, I mean, things, see, in, in many cases, it, it's not the law that needs to be changed. Now, I'm sure they're going to break down the sentence this guy got on various crimes that he committed. But in many cases, it, it's not it's not that a judge couldn't give out a 20-year sentence if he wanted to or she wanted to. It's that they decide not to do it for whatever reasons. And, and, and again, here's... I have a text that makes this point as well. We we all talk about the root causes, and that's a valid issue. And again, I I leave that to smarter people than me to figure it out. But once you turn to violence, you need to be taken off the streets to protect the rest of us from what's going on. All right, I want to switch gears here. We have a number of calls on this. Clear off the phone lines there. Their uh, group, because I, I, I want to. I'm sorry, and I know a number of people are waiting for a while, but I want to. I want to pose a different question, and this is kind of on a, a more personal sort of level. My guess is that you perhaps know a police officer. I know lots of police officers. I mean, I worked in law enforcement, you know, for for years and years. I know police officers. If you don't know a police officer personally, maybe your family member is is a police officer. Maybe you have, whether it's a direct family member or an extended family member. Maybe you've got something like that that's that's going on in in your. Maybe you've got a kid that that wants to be a police officer. I've always believed that it takes a, a special type of person who wants to end up doing something like that. But here is my question, and here's what I want to discuss with you. Would you recommend to a young person that they go into law enforcement? If And, and maybe you have this situation. If you had a kid in high school or a kid who was considering, what am I going to study in college, given what goes on on a daily basis in the streets of urban America, and given the way police officers are perceived in certain parts of this country, the city of Madison is embroiled in a heated debate right now. There are a number of agitators in the community who want the police out of schools. They don't want police officers in the high schools because they think it sends a bad example and will scare some of the kids. Honest to goodness, that's going on in Madison as we speak. 414-799-1620, that's the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Would you recommend to a young person that they go into law enforcement? 414-799-1620, we're back to discuss in just a moment. It's 1248, Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. 1250, Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. Very sad day in the city of Milwaukee. Very sad day in the state. A Milwaukee police officer for the second time in just a couple months lost his life in the line of duty. And, and one, I, I admit, one of the things that caught my attention is, is as the news was first breaking, you had a number of people in the community that, if you watch these TV reports, were, were hostile towards the police because the police had set up their barricades or whatever. And I'm thinking, a police officer has just been shot. Putting his life on the line, trying to 
apprehend an admittedly dangerous, an extremely dangerous person who is out on the streets, and, and you have people that are upset. And of course, this this goes along with the narrative that you get so often, which is, oh, you know, we see the police a, as our enemy. I mean, as I was saying right before the break, in the city, in, in Madison, there, there's a huge debate about whether you take the police out of Madison public schools, because some people believe that the police, well, I don't know, they, they re- represent an occupying force. And it really raises the issue of where is this next generation of law enforcement officers going to come from? And I don't think the police are perfect. I don't, I've never made that argument. But at the same time, nowadays you've got this, this second guessing that goes on all the time. Everybody pulls out their cell phone cameras. Everybody is waiting to criticize. And it seems that a lot of people end up with these giant chips on their shoulder and they decide to take it out on the police who put their lives on the line every day. We are, we're live streaming the segment on our Facebook Live. You can go, and we're going to be doing this, I think, for the first segment or two of, of every, every weekday show. So you can kind of make that a habit in addition to listening to the radio. It's facebook.com slash 620 WTMJ. Here's a couple of our Facebook comments. Um, Sydney says, I would only recommend my children become a police officer if they first spent time in the military. Uh, Steve says, yes, I would, but not necessarily everywhere. I, I, I seriously wrestle with, with these issues. My my nephew is, is going to have to be deciding what his career My nephew is 11 years old. He's going to have to be deciding you know, what his career is, not today, not tomorrow, but sometime soon. And I, I, I legitimately think if he came to me and he said, Uncle Jeff, you know, you were, you know, you were a prosecutor for years and years. And I, I don't think I want to go to law school, but I'm thinking I might want to go into law enforcement in some way. You know, do, what would you recommend? I, I have to admit, I would honestly, I, I think long and hard. And while I would never discouraging him from doing that, which I think is an, an honorable and a necessary vocation, we, we would, we'd, we'd have a conversation where we talked about, well, you understand, I mean, this is, this is, these are going to be some of the challenges that you end up facing. And you understand it, it's not like you see on TV. It, it's not like there's the, the lights and they say, you know, action and, and then all's well at the end of the 30 minutes or the 60 minutes and you always get the bad guy off the street. You, you have to understand that this is, it's real that's out there. You have to make split second decisions. There's always going to be people that are second guessing you. And, and every once in a while, the good guys lose and they lose in a, in a big way because unfortunately, life is not fair. I would have that conversation. So this is, this is one of these times where I, I think this is something that the police chief and the mayor and elected officials and I, I think we, we all agree that this is maybe one of these occasions on a day like today. And we should be doing this on an everyday basis, but can everybody in the community maybe perhaps come together and appreciate the job that police officers do on a daily basis? It doesn't bring back this officer, but maybe it makes the job that the other officers do on the streets a, a little bit easier. And so for people who believe in the no snitching policy or for people who believe that, well, I don't want to trust police officers or I don't want to cooperate. All right. Maybe this should make you rethink for at least a little bit the way you approach this. It's 1255. This is Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. 110, Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. So, Mike, Pfizer has confirmed that they are now going to be the naming rights sponsor. Yeah, the Pfizer Forum. 
Pfizer Forum. Now, this is interesting because, well, the story was, it came out at the end of May, so May, June, about two months ago. Um, there were reports in, like, the Business Journal and the Sports Business Journal saying that Pfizer was going to be the naming sponsors. And then there was a series of stories saying, nope, um, they, they, they weren't. Well, what's interesting, the, the way it was phrased is... Apparently, after this report came out, somebody goes to Fiserv and says, are, are you are you going to do the deal? And in what was a very artful comment, they said, we are not the naming rights sponsor. All right. Um, and then the buck said, we don't have a naming rights partner. Well, all right. Now, th- nobody lied. No, the, the Bucks did not have a naming rights partner, and Fiserv was speaking in the present sense. We are not the naming rights sponsor. They didn't say that they weren't going to be potentially, you know, moving on. So that's uh, apparently what's happened is there is there is the deal. And I mean, I, I think it's great. You know, Fiserv, of course, is a Brookfield-based financial service company with a national and arguably international profile so i think that's uh, i i think that's that's a good thing it's good to get it done and now now when we say hey there's going to be a concert at we don't have to go the wisconsin whatever it is we can just say it's going to be the fiserv forum all right now maybe i was a little bit too dismissive in the last segment of the program about the, this trade the brewers have made if you if you look at the Brewers team, and again, I just look at it from the perspective as a fan, and you think of all the different things that they need, um, starting pitching, I think, comes to mind, given the, the injuries that they have. Um, you're still getting no production, essentially offensively, out of the catcher's position. There's issues with shortstop. There's issues with second base. Uh, you, you wouldn't necessarily think relief pitching, because the bullpen has been one of the, the strong points of the season. But at the same time, you can't have enough good relief pitchers, and so that's what the Brewers have gone out and done. They've traded for Joaquin Soria, who is the White Sox closer. In return, the Brewers gave up uh, a left-handed pitcher, Cody Medeiros, who's 22 years old. He was their first pick in 2014. He's been pitching in A Biloxi, and they gave up a 20-year-old right-handed pitcher, Wilbur Perez. So they, they didn't give up any of their top-line, immediate, ready-to-contribute-tomorrow prospects for this. And, and Soria, um, to his credit, two-time All-Star. He's 34 years old, but he's had a... 0.74 earned run average since May 21st. So he's been on a hot streak. 12 saves in his last 13 chances. None of the 12 inherited runners has scored against him this year. Uh, apparently the, what happens is he's due around $3 million for the rest of the year. He has, uh, there's a mutual option for 10 million for next year. Um, he's got a million dollar buyout, and apparently the White Sox are contributing some money towards that. So I, I guess in the category of you, you can never have enough good relief pitchers, especially if it looks like your starting pitching might not be able to sometimes go beyond five innings. Probably a pretty good pickup. My guess is that they're not going to stop here. The trading deadline is what uh, July thirty first, so that is coming up quickly. So that's the Brewers' deal, and we'll have more of that throughout the day. A number of you watched the first segments of the program on our Facebook Live. We are going to be doing that on a pretty regular basis. I think during the twelve o'clock hour of the show. So be sure to check that out moving forward. All right. Think you lost some money today? All right. Th- Think things, you know, maybe 
you know, maybe you made an investment in a stock and it went down a little bit. Maybe, I don't know, you know, maybe you woke up in the morning and all of a sudden you, you can't find some money that you thought you had under the mattress or whatever. Think you're having a tough time financially. Well, how would you like to be the people that own Facebook? For example, Facebook co-founder and chief executive Mark Zuckerberg, who is a piece of work. As a, after what happened, after the close of business Yesterday, overnight, Facebook, Mark Zuckerberg lost $17 billion. Yes, you heard me right. $17 billion. Facebook's market capitalization dropped $120 billion overnight. Leading now, I, I don't know. I haven't had a chance to check where Facebook is today. And, and a lot of times what happens is the huge drops overnight aren't ultimately mirrored in what finally happens the next day. But uh, the NASDAQ, which is very techno- technology heavy and technology driven, and Facebook is a huge component, uh, NASDAQ down 74 points. The Dow Jones Industrial is up, is up. The Dow is up 135. I think that reflects some of the softening of tensions between the United States and the European Union on tariffs. But but Facebook took a huge hit. It dropped $120 billion, B as in billion, not million, B as in billion dollars in market capitalization. The Facebook shares overnight dropped 19%. It lost one out of, so if you had, uh, if you had invested in Facebook, you lost 20% of your money overnight in the overnight trading if you were going to sell this morning first thing, which people wouldn't do. So what was it that caused Facebook to drop? Well, well, it's not like Facebook declared that they were going bankrupt. It's not like Facebook said, hey, people aren't using us anymore. Here's, here's what happened. First of all, um, Facebook recorded sales of $13.23 billion for the second quarter that ended in June. $13.23 billion. Well, all right, that would seem to be a lot of money, and it is a lot of money. The problem was that Wall Street estimated that the sales would be $13.3 billion. So that, that $0.7 billion, which they, they, missed their, they missed their goal, but it's not like they weren't doing a lot of business, but that caused investors to panic, just absolutely panic. Also, Facebook said that the growth, Now, this isn't talking about the number of users, but the growth, the new people coming to Facebook, fell short of their expectations. It was up 11% year to year. So second quarter last year to second quarter this year, they grew 11%, all right? But that missed by, you know, several million people the numbers that they thought that they would get. So it's not like Facebook isn't growing. It just didn't grow quite as much as they they passed, uh, as they thought they would. Net income, $5.11 billion, which was over um, what they estimated. So the, the headlines are Facebook plunges, billions of dollars lost, because they slightly, slightly, slightly missed their earnings targets and their growth targets. 
right? But now this has a lot of people reexamining the whole concept of, of Facebook. Is Facebook going to be this engine that continues to grow and grow and grow, you know, to the sky like everybody has predicted and like it has over the last you know, couple decades? Here's the deal. I'm I am only on Facebook sporadically. I have a Facebook page through work that I honestly don't check that much. I get notifications, and every once in a while I'll answer, but I, I don't check it that much. My wife uses Facebook as a way to connect with family and friends, and it's sort of like, oh, she'll, you know, she'll look at it a few times a week, oh, and, and look at who's posted stuff, and look, here, here is Tom and Meredith and the kids. They're in Spain, or, or so-and-so, and, and so we, we use it. But we don't use it, you know, on a kind of daily basis. At the same time, I understand that there are people who are absolutely, totally, 100% addicted to Facebook. Can't get enough of it. All right, our number, 414-799-1620. That's the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Facebook value takes a huge hit in overnight trading. NASDAQ is down today. Some people are saying, oh, this is really troubling for Facebook. It's not getting the growth it wants. I don't think people are willing to give up their Facebook things. I know there's some concerns with privacy and stuff, but I think Facebook is still pretty much for the people who use it. I think it's pretty much of an ongoing thing. So let's tee this up. If you are a Facebook user, and I know you are, are are, are you using it less do you have concerns about the future of this social network, or is Facebook going to continue to grow? Candidly, talk to me about Harley-Davidson. Harley-Davidson, I think, is going to have some trouble growing its business. Facebook, no. 414-799-1620. Facebook users of the world unite. All right, are, are you concerned about this company? Is it falling out of favor with users? My answer is I don't think so. 414-799-1620. We discuss in just a moment. It's 120. Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. 123. Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. All right. Shares of Facebook stock, which has been pretty much like Teflon. It's gone one way and up. It just tanked last night. It was down 19%. Lost $120 billion, B as in billion dollars in market, market capitalization. You're not going to have to have a tag sale for Mark Zuckerberg, the founder, but he, he lost $16 billion. That That's only if you sold all your stock. I, I don't know. I assume the stock has rebounded slightly today, but it took a big hit. Not because Facebook didn't grow the number of users, not because they didn't make a whole bunch of money, but because they didn't make as much money as industry analysts thought. And they also said, hey, we, we think growth is going to slow down a little bit. All right, is this the end of Facebook? I don't buy it. Tim in Menominee Falls. Tim, you're on WTMJ. Hello. Hi, uh, yes. So I'm a, a college professor, and I actually kind of study social media use mm-hmm. for political purposes, but there is some pretty convincing evidence that younger people, um, I'm talking about early or, or younger millennials, Generation Z people, are less likely to sign up for Facebook as opposed to signing up for other social media accounts like Instagram and Snapchat. So, I why do you think that? Why do you think that is? Is it because you know Instagram? I mean, is it because Facebook is mom and dad's thing, or what do you think is going on? I do think that the I guess relatively more recent social media platforms are a little bit more specific in what their goals are. So Instagram is much more about images, Snapchat much more about video. And I think for you know, my 
my take is for younger people, there is some appeal to that mm-hmm. uh, versus Facebook, which tends to be um, a little more text-based. And obviously, yeah. there's Facebook Live and things like that. But the interactive features of relatively newer social media platforms might make it a little more appealing to younger generations. So is Facebook aging out then? I mean, is, is there something they do to, to turn that around? Well, I think they've tried. I mean, they yeah. have Facebook Live. They um, right. There's other interactive features they've used. Um, and I think, you know, I think it's just, my takeaway is that it's a generational uh-huh. thing. Um, well, and I'm not sure if in some way social media maybe has set up a saturation point and Facebook sort of being pushed out no, to younger generations at least. Right. Now, thanks. It, it could very well be because, that I mean, that is one of the things that you see you know, it, it happens with technology just like it happens, you know, in, in the real world. Just like uh, I, I go back and use the Harley example. Harley has an issue because younger people don't – the idea of people going and dropping twenty five and $30,000 on a bike and, and having that Harley lifestyle, that's something for the baby boomers. It's not necessarily something for the younger people. That's what mom and dad did. And I, I think, you know, in the technology world, maybe you're seeing a little bit of that play out. I will tell you, though, I mean, there's still – this is an enormous company, and it's still incredibly, incredibly popular. And, and yes – Okay, maybe their growth didn't hit 12%, but it still hit 11%, and that, that's pretty good. Mike on the northwest side. Mike, you're on WTMJ. Hello. Hey, good afternoon, Jeff. Hi, Mike. Uh, my, my, my thoughts are on, on Facebook. Uh, they're still a viable company. Uh, the problem with them is uh, they, you know, Mark Zuckerberg uh, invested a lot in uh, security now. That's why they dropped a little bit in profit mm-hmm. for this quarter. And uh, going on to Harley, I think Harley's got a bigger problem with uh, millennials not riding bikes. And Facebook, I think, uh, is going to be okay. But what they need to do is uh, restructure their kind of, uh, you know, so you can get on there. It's hard to navigate on Facebook. Right. And I'm only on Facebook like you. I check for birthdays and say happy <laughs> birthday to somebody. Right. Yeah, exactly. Uh, th- thanks for calling. I mean, I don't use it. I, I'm, I, I use Twitter through work. I am on the Twitter through work, and we're, you know, if you want to follow me, it's at, it's at Jeff Wagner 620. I, I mean, I, I, we do that. Like I say, my wife is on Facebook because, you know, it, it's a way of communicating with family and friends, and you can see where they're, they're going, and, and that's positive. But I'm not one of these people that just uh, obsesses over that. But I, I, I grant I'm also not necessarily the target. The question becomes, is Facebook becoming old hat. Let's talk to Mike in Bayside. Hi, Mike. You're on WTMJ. Hello. Uh, I have anecdotal evidence to support what your first caller said. I'm a parent of eight kids. A bunch of them are stepkids, but they're all wonderful. Right. And about four or five years ago, all of them were on Facebook, aside from the two youngest, uh, the three youngest. Uh, two of them even lied about their age to get on there, which is pretty <laughs> easy, which I spotted as a flaw right away. But anyway, uh, now nobody's on it. Instagram for the one who likes to take pictures of herself with little blurbs. Uh, Snapchat for the one who's always talking to her friends on it. That's where they talk back and forth. They don't right. use a cell phone. They don't text. And then uh, the youngest one is on YouTube. Or not the youngest, but the 11-year-old is on YouTube. Okay. Facebook is just not a, bl- a blip on their radar right now. That's something mom and dad, no, not dad, <laughs> I don't do it. But mom does, like you said, check, see what's going on, right. uh, get caught up. But they don't, they don't do it. Huh. So you think that it is... If if that tra- if based on your anecdotal experience, it might be that 
not today, not tomorrow, five years, ten years from now, Facebook goes the way of, of print editions of newspapers or something like that, huh? Yeah, and i got to say, kids want everything super fast. Kids don't, kids don't untie their shoes anymore. They tie them once and forget it. They don't want to take the time to type out a message. They just don't want to do it. They don't want to scroll through a bunch of stuff. They don't want to do it. They want to go to quick instant gratification, which is what the other side give them. Interesting. Thanks for the call. I appreciate it. I, I, I think yesterday's market reaction was an overreaction to to numbers that weren't anywhere near as bad as some people might have thought they were. And, and sometimes you end up having that. What the future is going to hold for Facebook would be interesting because, you know, we if you would have 20 years ago, nobody would have believed that the newspaper industry was in the mess, would be in the mess that it's in now. Nobody would have believed that you would have, you know, daily print edition to newspapers be struggling as much as they are, but technology passed them by. It would be ironic if, you know, Facebook, which was, you know, one of the that aspects of technology that really revolutionized things, whether they get caught in the same cycle. It's 129, Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. It's 137, this is Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. So very glad to have you with us. The Republican primary for the U.S. Senate is heating up, and the ad war is on. You can hear the two candidates debate tonight at 6 on WTMJ. And John Mercure has a preview with one of the moderators at 520 on Wisconsin's Afternoon News. All right, Gru, I'm about to do something that could potentially get me called into a meeting. Because we're going to be airing that debate, and they're going to be showing it on TV and stuff. Here's my question. Outside of people on the payroll of the campaigns and immediate family members, how many people are going to be watching the Republican gubernatorial debate or listening to it? And we'll, we'll take watching and listening to it, and we'll put it all together. How many? Less than 100? Less than or more than 100? What's your guess? Come on. Okay. So you're, go, you're going this route. You're going down this route with, because we're, we're stream, we're putting this up on our air. You think, you think less than 100? I, I, I'm with you too. I know. I, I mean, it's and it, I, I, I have been. Uh, I, I understand we're supposed to build this up, but I mean, seriously. I mean, okay. It's a, it's a gorgeous night in July. And again, I understand that the candidates and the campaigns and a handful of people from the the news media and and the people who are uh, the the people who are related. But that's why it, it was kind of the point because we had all the, this angst over. How many Democratic candidates are going to be allowed to be on the stage during their first debate, the one that was televised? And the truth of the matter was, who really watched it? You know, it's kind of like if you have a debate, nobody pays attention. And I understand you have to do it. And I, I will, will I be watching it tonight? You ask. Well, no, truth is I, I, I will, I will be watching snippets of it in the aftermath, but not exactly sure what I'm going to be doing at six o'clock. But it, it, if you want to see it, it, it's there. I'm just wondering how many people actually are going to. And maybe maybe it's a sad commentary on our society that more people are going to be watching focused on Jeopardy than are going to be focused on the candidate debate. But it kind of is what it is. All right. Speaking of it is what it is. You could rhetorically say, what kind of lawyer surreptitiously tapes his client and then, you know, gives up those tapes. And the the answer would be, well, it's the kind of lawyer that apparently President Trump uh, would, would hire. This Michael Cohen has been, what's the technical term? I think I got it in the third year of law school, sleazebag. He just, the guy screams sleazebag. He was one of the, 
I don't think as a lawyer, he, he, he was on the periphery of the Trump orbit, and I don't think they ever trusted him to do really significant stuff. But but he was the guy that was kind of like the fixer that would come in and and handle some of the peripheral things. And he clearly, I, I think in many respects, knows where some of the, the bodies are buried, such as it is. And Michael Cohn's been this guy who, you get the sense, I've had the sense all along, that, that he had a major league bromance with Donald Trump and, and now President Trump. And this was, he just wanted to be part of the, the Trump orbit. And... As a result, you know, he, he'd be the guy that, that did a lot of kind of the, the dirty work. And I don't mean this to say, you know, illegal behavior or anything like that. But, but Trump, but this Michael Cohen is the kind of guy that I, I don't understand why billionaires would hire somebody like him other than the fact that he'd maybe do stuff that other lawyers would kind of look at and say, do you really want that to happen? So Michael Cohen's always been kind of a, a, a sleaze bag and, you can draw whatever conclusions you want about what type of guy hires a sleazebag lawyer. All right. that and, and I'll just leave it out there. Okay. The latest story that's going around is that this tape that CNN got a copy of, which was a conversation between President Trump and Michael Cohen and other people who are in there. It, it's one of these things that's just – it's it's – Sounds like what it must be like to be in the, the Trump world where you've got like five or six conversations going on at once that purportedly discusses what happened with regard to Karen McDougal. Who is Karen McDougal? Karen McDougal is a former Playboy model who says that she met President Trump, I think it was in 2006, and that the two of them had an affair off and on for the better part of, of 10 months. So her story is that she was sleeping with President Trump when he was Donald Trump, the celebrity apprentice, all that type of stuff. Now, what's different from, and you got to, sometimes you need to keep a scorecard here. What's different in Karen McDougal from Stephanie Clifford, also known as Stormy Daniels, uh, Stormy Daniels says it was a one night stand, although I get the impression they didn't stand, you know, after a, a golf tournament. McDougal says, you know, we had a we had an ongoing affair for about 10 months. All right. So the president denies both of these. Can I see a show of hands? Is there anybody who believe? Can, OK, everybody out there who believes that Donald Trump did not sleep with Stormy Daniels and Karen McDougal. Can I see a show of hands? Gru, your hand is not going up. My hand is not going up either. Okay, I, I understand the president denies this. Color me skeptical. I, I, I suspect, I suspect that these two, just like when you look at the various women that Bill Clinton had or was with over the years, just like I, I think the tip of the iceberg with the ones who came public with Bill Clinton. My guess is that, that these two are kind of the, the tip of the iceberg. Donald Trump was a celebrity playboy in every sense of the word. And candidly, I his denials that he had a relationship or an affair or whatever, I, I find that hard to believe. That is not necessarily disqualifying. And I do believe that not a single person that voted for Donald Trump in November of 2016 would have changed their vote if instead of saying, no, I didn't have an affair with Karen McDougal. If Trump had said, I had an affair with Karen McDougal. I, I don't I don't think it would have changed one person's vote. All right. In any event, here's, here's what happened, and here's kind of the background on this. The National Enquirer 
You know, the folks that are at the checkout stand saying, a woman discovers space alien in backyard. Okay, the National Enquirer folks and the guy that owns the National Enquirer has been a friend of Donald Trump's for years and years and years, well predating the presidency. The company that, that the parent company of, of the National Enquirer is a company called AMI. All right. So what happened was during the, the heart of the presidential campaign, AMI, right, gets this information. The National Enquirer gets this information about the story from this Karen McDougal. So what they do is they buy her story. They buy the rights to her story. You will, you know, will will tell your story exclusively, and they pay her. I think it was like one hundred and fifty thousand dollars, one hundred and thirty thousand dollars, something like that. They pay her a bunch of money for that. They then decide that they're not going to run the story. They call it in the industry that they call it catch and kill. Somebody gets the rights to something and then they kill it. They don't end up publishing it. Now, ultimately. After the election, Karen McDougal sued to try to have this agreement voided, and she ultimately won, so she's free to tell the story. But but this did not come out, at least her story was not run by the National Enquirer, who had the rights to this. So now what's being investigated is whether or not there was collusion between Donald Trump and the Donald Trump campaign and the National Enquirer to kill this story. Now, even if there was collusion, it's kind of an open question as to whether that would violate the law or not. Um, you could make, I guess, if you were an aggressive prosecutor, you could perhaps make an argument that this would be a, a campaign finance donation. If you obtain the rights, if you're a publisher, and you obtain the rights to an embarrassing story about a candidate, and then made the decision that you were going to run that story, are you making a contribution to the candidate's campaign? That's the way the argument would, would work. I think it's I think it's a really, really tough sell because how do you how do you establish that? I mean news news organizations come into possession of stories all the time and they make the decision we're not going to run with this. Maybe they'd make the decision we're not going to run with it because, well, editorially or you know, the publisher is supporting a candidate. Well, is that a violation of the law? I, I doubt it. What if they decide that, well, we're not going to run with it because we're not sure it's true? You know, where do you draw the line? Now, obviously, the investigators question whether or not the decision not to run the story was a legitimate press function or not. But if they pursue this and prosecutors pursue it, I, I think it's a very, very difficult prosecution and one that I think ultimately probably crumbles uh, again because who's going to be able to – Who do we really want the government saying, all right, we're going to scrutinize decisions that newspapers and TV stations and radio stations make as to what they run or what they, they don't run? So you do have that issue, I guess, that's out there. And Could the National Enquirer theoretically get in trouble? I guess maybe. Does it tie back to the Trump campaign or at least to Donald Trump? That's a tougher thing. But this is now the, the story that's getting all the attention that's out there. And, and I, I have a question for you. Do you care? 
The, the, the number is 414-799-1620. That is the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Do you care whether or not Donald Trump had an affair with a Playboy model in 2006 or 2007? Do you care if the National Enquirer obtained the rights to that story and then decided they were going to sit on it before the election? On on your list of voting issues or concerns, do you care about this in any way, shape, or form, or is it a complete and total non-story? 414-799-1620. That's the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Now, I understand the president denies, you know, that he had this affair with this woman. Does anybody care uh, about that in at this point in time, in 2018, in the big picture? Because like I say, I I'll be honest with you, I... I tend to believe the woman over the president. But do you care? Because this is the story that is sucking all the oxygen out of the beltway in the national media right now. Does anybody care about this? 414-799-1620. That's the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. We discuss next. 149, Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. 151, Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. Okay, I tried to give you sort of the Reader's Digest version of this 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 tape thing that's out there. National Enquirer buys the rights to this Playboy model story. Her story is that, that she had an affair with Donald Trump for about 10 months back in 2006 and 2007. The National Enquirer kills it. They call it Catch and Kill. They buy it. The National Enquirer, the publisher, is a, is a friend and longtime supporter of Donald Trump. So the special prosecutor is now looking into did the decision to obtain this story and then not run it. Was that a campaign finance violation story? I think that's a, I think that's really a stretch. Now, I understand in theory you can maybe make the argument one way or the other, but I, 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 I that that's really a stretch, and I, I, I can't see anybody getting convicted in connection with that. But this is again, it's sucking all the oxygen out of the air. I mean, th- does anybody care about this? Okay, Amy in New Berlin says, I definitely care. The best predictor of future behavior is past behavior. If Trump is not going to treat his wife with any more respect and honesty than these affairs show, what is to make anyone believe that he would treat the American public or anyone who works with him uh, with any amount of respect um, and dignity? Well, I mean, I, I understand the, the point she makes, but at the same time, I, I think, don't we know kind of, um, what, don't we know about the, care, the president's behavior? I could care, here's another text. I could care less who President Trump has or hasn't slept with prior to becoming president. It's here business. Um, it's his business. It seems that Stormy might just want to see how much money she can get. Um, if she was kind of regular Joe would be making this public. Um, no, she, she wouldn't. Uh, here's another text. I'm a 49 year old woman and I don't care who Donald Trump slept with. All right, 414-799-1620. Let's start with, um, Sue in Cedarburg. Sue, you're on WTMJ. Hi. Hi, Sue. Um, I, I listen and I chuckle. You know, I don't really care who he sleeps with and that's something he has to deal with his wife. That's their issue. But, you know, we don't have such a good record with presidents. We've got Kennedy. Oh my gosh, that was a, you know he was a womanizer to the extreme. Yep, yes. <laughs> and the and press knew it. And it's interesting; the press knew about a lot of these things and just decided we're not going to run those stories. And we did, yeah. And they never said boo about anything. And then you've got Clinton. So you know what? We don't have such a good record as it is, and, do, and I don't really care. Okay. You know, and do you do you care if? The National Enquirer decided to sit on the story um, before the election, so to not make him look bad. 
I don't. That's their that's their business. It's a business, and they decided not to do it. I don't really care because I think what people would be focusing on is is that not what he's going to do for the country and what his plans are, et cetera, et cetera. That's what's going on right now. I mean, he's done wonderful things as the president, and they're focusing on all this crap. Okay, good enough. Thanks for the call. 414-799-1620. See, here's, I, I mean, I, I, I will tell you, and I, I think for all the media outlets that are jumping on this, they, they need to be a little bit careful because what happens moving forward if, all right, there, there's a story that comes in about, I don't know, whoever is going to be the Democratic nominee for president in 2020, Elizabeth Warren or whatever, and it paints Warren in a bad light, and the editors or the publisher or whatever makes this decision that we're not going to run that story for whatever reason. Do do you want to be scrutinized for for that decision? Why didn't you run it? Well, isn't it because, you know, everybody at the newspaper and the owners are are big supporters of Elizabeth Warren, and you didn't run that story that might make her look bad? I, I mean, do you want to open this Pandora's box? Bill in Mount Pleasant. Bill, you're on WTMJ. Uh, hi, I agree with the other callers that came in. We've got every president, Theodore Roosevelt, uh, you know, Kennedy, they all seem to have had affairs. And really, it's more of a personal issue. So, I mean, but if you st- start on that slippery slope of trying to find out who said what to who at what time, mm-hmm. uh, then you got the news, news agencies that won't give out their information because it's privacy of their confidentiality. The things that upset set me more are things like what happened to the Hillary emails. I mean, that is that is security. Well, well, right. No, and see, and this, this is, I mean, see, this is the, the larger picture. Uh, it, it, the larger picture is, all right, let's say you had, and, look, and I understand it's tough to see the National Enquirer as, as a legitimate media outlet. I mean, the National Enquirer buys stories as a general rule that the press doesn't. But, but this is the, the door that you are opening up, which is, all right, are we now going to, do you want government prosecutors investigating media outlets to determine why they did or did not run a story. The Washington Post is owned by Jeff Bezos. Jeff Bezos is a Trump hater, and and the feeling is returned. All right, so do we really want the government now scrutinizing every decision that the Washington Post makes? Hey, you decided to run you during a campaign period you ran all these negative stories about donald trump you wanted to get you know his opponent elected do we want them analyzing and trying to analyze why it was that you made this particular decision to run this story or not i'm just saying it's a really really dangerous precedent here and i'm not sure at this point in time that that too many people care about it and by the way how did we get off on this tirade when we started you know this investigation determining whether there was collusion between the trump campaign and russia now we're looking into why the national enquirer may or may not have run a story about a 10-year-old affair how did this get so out of control 158 jeff wagner wtmj Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. All right, crew, who's been the show today and always. I'm going to give people a chance to accuse me of being a hypocrite. Actually, it's really not hypocrisy. You might be able to accuse me of being inconsistent. I don't think so. But here's the discussion. 
as a general rule, I do not think the government should be taking taxpayer dollars and picking winners and losers with regard to businesses. Because how do you draw the line? The city of Milwaukee, a couple years back, decides that it's going to give a sweetheart deal to Boston Store to keep its, its headquarters in downtown Milwaukee. Well, how did that deal work out? Didn't work out that well. But, but before it even went south, what about the other businesses in, in downtown Milwaukee or, or even, you know, moving toward the outskirts of the city of Milwaukee who say, wait a second, you know, why are we giving this money to, to Boston store? Why are we helping them stay? How about me? The road in front of my building was torn up. Why, why, why aren't you, I lost 30% of my business. Why aren't you giving me money to help get me to stay? That, that's the problem. How do you pick the winners and losers? Now, sometimes I think there are overriding justifications for the government getting involved. Miller Park. I was a proponent of building Miller Park. I stand by that decision. Yes, you could say, all right, here you have the taxpayers getting involved and they're, they're paying their money to build a stadium that's going to be used for, you know, billionaire owners and millionaire players. Why should the taxpayers do it? My argument in favor of Miller Park was that it benefits more than just the owners and more than just the players. It was something which was important to the community to keep baseball here. I believe it was going to lead to economic development. And I think, you know, I think time's proven me right. You may disagree, but I think time's proven me right. I argued in favor of funding the Bucks Arena. This was a little bit of a tougher call for me because here you have multi-billionaire owners and multi-millionaire players uh, playing in a, a taxpayer facility that the taxpayers are partially underwriting the cost on. And my real questions were, you know, is this going to really revitalize the downtown area? I know they're talking about all this new development. Is that going to come at the expense of the existing development? Uh, all in all, and I think I think the downtown Bucks Arena was a tougher call than Miller Park, but because the Bucks were putting up half the money, and I, I thought it was worth it. So I, I came out in favor of that. I came out in favor of Foxconn, and I continue to believe that Foxconn is going to turn out to be a transformative sort of deal. But, Jeff, this is, this is taxpayer dollars going to a private company. How can you support that? You're picking winners and losers. And and here is my justification for Foxconn. I think, just like Miller Park, Foxconn has the potential to be transformative. If Foxconn works as intended, and 10 years from now, 15 years from now, we'll we'll know one way or the other. But what you have is is you have a, a totally new industry that is essentially brought into the state with thousands and thousands of jobs, that around those thousands and thousands of jobs, you're going to have all sorts of collateral businesses that are going to develop. In addition to that, you're talking about it being a game changer because potentially, and maybe this won't happen, but potentially you're you're talking about turning southeastern Wisconsin into a technology hub, doing something that hasn't been done before that may in fact make us a magnet for people from all over the country to want to come and work at Foxconn and things like that. Now, maybe that doesn't happen. Maybe it doesn't happen. I hope it does. And so I supported Foxconn and the payoffs because 
I thought it had the potential to be transformative, something new that will have ripple effects and will grow the economy and perhaps change the dynamics of business in Wisconsin for years and years to come. So that's why I am a supporter of Foxconn, and that's how I reconcile it with my general reluctance to say government should be bailing out businesses, winners and losers. So where does that leave us? Well, I want to talk to you about another Wisconsin business, Kimberly Clark. I said earlier this week, it was tonight's Thursday, Tuesday, Tuesday night, I went with my friend Evan. We went up to Appleton to attend. Uh, it was a, there's a down there's a there's a it's called a history museum. It's in downtown Appleton. Really a cool place. I had never been there, and I said the other day how how much I love downtown Appleton. I had not been there in in years. Nothing personal. I just hadn't been there in years. And we drove down College Avenue. I mean, there was all these bars and restaurants and stuff. Drove past the Performing Arts Center. The event at the History Museum with Jerry Kramer was incredible. Had a great time. And I, I came home and I said to my wife, you know, we got to go up there and just wander around the downtown area. I guarantee you it's not going to be as long before I, I go back. But so we were up in Appleton. The The huge story involving the Fox River Valley now has to do with Kimberly Clark, which is, of course, one of the, the big businesses up there. You might recall this story. A number of months ago, Kimberly Clark announced that they would be, they were going to be closing, I think, two plants and potentially putting several thousand people out, out of, of work. Um, as a result of changes in the markets, um, you know, they were saying, okay, we're going to, um, close our, our cold spring plant in Fox Crossing as well as other plants in Wisconsin. Um, it could reduce the workforce by up to 5,000 jobs as part of a global restructuring. And what they were saying is that, you know, the, the, what's going to have to happen here is in order for us to keep operating, we are going to have to get significant concessions from the union on a new agreement, and we are going to have to get incentives from the state along the lines of Foxconn-related incentives. We want refundable tax credits um, that would pay us $115 million a year over 15 years in order to retain these existing facilities all right the assembly approved that but it's now been hanging fire for a while want to take a quick break when we come back i'm going to tell you what has happened since then and we're going to discuss whether the taxpayers should be bailing out kimberly clark stick around it's 217 this is jeff wagner 219 jeff wagner wtmj okay so kimberly clark i have plants all over the world They say earlier this year, we are going to close two of our plants in the Fox River Valley. We are going to, that will cost somewhere in the neighborhood of six to seven hundred jobs. All right. Out of this global restructuring, we're doing five thousand five hundred. But if we can get concessions from the union and we can get Foxconn type payments from the state, maybe we'll reconsider. All right. So the union has just agreed to make concessions. Not as many, and they're, they're not saying what these concessions are, but not as many and not as deep concessions as Kimberly Clark first asked. So the union stepped up, they said, okay, we'll, we'll take some concessions. 
Now Kimberly Clark is saying to the state, okay, if you want us to keep these plants open, what you're going to have to do is you're going to have to step up and give us what you gave Foxconn to come to Wisconsin in the first place. And, I mean, these are the tax credits of between 100 and $115 million over 15 years, uh, refundable tax credits, 17% of eligible wages for 15 years, et cetera, et cetera. Pretty, a pretty sweet deal. We did it for Foxconn to bring Foxconn to Wisconsin. Here is my question, 414-799-1620. That's the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Should we do it? We did it for Foxconn to bring potentially 13,000 Foxconn jobs and thousands more, theoretically, to support Foxconn, to try to create this new operation, a technology hub in southeastern Wisconsin. We did it. Should we do it in the Fox Valley? Same sort of thing, not as much money involved because you're talking about a, a smaller number of people, but essentially the same sort of deal to keep these two plants operating, 414-799-1620. And if we do it for Kimberly Clark, do we then have to do it for every manufacturing concern or business concern that decides that, you know, they're going to, that are going to threaten to close a plant or close a facility or put people out of work? Is this the standard? Have we set the precedent? Or is Foxconn different? 414-799-1620. That is the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. This buyout, bailout package, has been approved by the State Assembly. Much less clear in the State Senate where it's going to go. You don't know if any Democrats are going to support it, although there are a couple Democrat state senators from the Fox Valley who might have incentive to do it. Um, the guy who's a Republican who represents the Appleton area, he's a big proponent. But there's a number of the more conservative members of the state Senate who are saying, whoa, we're, we're this is not the route to go down. And while we'd hate to see Kimberly Clark close these plants, we cannot pay out taxpayer dollars every time some company threatens to leave unless they get a deal. 414-799-1620. That's the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Look, I, I hope, I would hate to see 610 people in the Fox Valley lose their jobs. I, I, I would. And I hope Kimberly Clark decides that they want to keep these plants open. Having said that, though, and you can accuse me of being inconsistent if you want, I think Foxconn is a different breed of animal. And I, I think that the state taxpayers cannot allow themselves to be put in a position where every time you have a company that threatens they're going to make a closing unless they get huge incentives to stay, I think at some point in time you have to say, no, we're just not going to decide winners and losers. And in this case, I think Kimberly Clark is different than Foxconn. 414-799-1620, that's the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. I'm not sure this is going to pass especially in an election year. Leah Vukmir, state senator from Brookfield, she's come out against this. There's an 1815 Republican majority in the state Senate thus far, but I'm not convinced that I'm not convinced that you you're, I think you're going to lose some Republicans. I don't know if you're going to pick up Democrats. And while I'd hate to see these jobs go, I also hate to see the state being held hostage um, for payouts. Okay, 414-799-1620. Let's start with Jose in West Dallas, you're on WTMJ. Hello. Hi. Hi. The reason I'm calling is because I'm hearing that what we're giving or what they want 
But I'm just wondering what uh, Kimberly Clark is going to offer offer us as a guarantee. Like, is there not going to be any layoffs, say, for 10 years mm-hmm. or any kind of benefits that would uh, uh, give us an incentive to, to make that deal with them? So you would want to see, before they did something like that, you would want to see ironclad promises. For example, like like the Bucks gave, build the arena with taxpayer dollars, and we guarantee that we're going to sign a, a 20 I forget whether the lease was 20 years, 25 years, with some really strict penalties if we decide to move. You'd want to see something like this. Exactly. Yeah, we deserve something if we're going to risk that. Got it. Okay, thanks for the call. 414-799-1620. Do we give in to Kimberly Clark? And if we give in to Kimberly Clark, what happens when the next company says the same thing? Is that what happened now that we've drawn the line with Foxconn? Do we have to give Foxconn incentives to every business? We continue the conversation in just a moment. 225, Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. 227, Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. Andrew writes, incentives should only be offered to start up uh, or to draw new employers. Once their startup incentives are over, they can't get new deals every time they make a threat. Chuck on the South Side writes, Jeff, I don't know all the details of Kimberly Clark, but Foxconn is just starting out and will cause growth. Kimberly Clark, on the other hand, is struggling to survive. There's no guarantee that the help will keep it afloat. The paper industry is a lot different than the high tech industry. Let's talk to Cheryl in Wauwatosa. Hi, Cheryl. Hi. What do you think? I think that they absolutely they should give the incentives because it's a viable regional employer in that area and it needs the incentives to keep going and to keep the economy going in that area does do you then set a precedent that every time you have for example a manufacturer that you know is talking about getting rid of 500 jobs which is a significant amount of jobs that the state then has to step in it depends upon the situation in the area. You know, if that were in the city of Milwaukee, probably not, because any of those people could move to another another uh, entity in this in this area. But in Appleton, who is going to move? Where are they going to go to get a job like that mm-hmm. that they have with with Casey right now? Mm-hmm. So you would say that we have to look at it depending on, on the region and per depending on the, the industry, essentially. That's correct. And depending upon the, the, the region and the opportunities in that region. Okay. Thanks for the call. I appreciate it. I mean, and look, I, here, here's the problem that I have. It's tough to pick. It, I mean, it's tough to pick winners and losers. I, I don't know how you, all right, you say, all right, so we're, uh, okay, Line and Kugel's Brewery out of Chippewa Falls that, that maybe is a, a significant regional employer. Line and Kugel's Brewery says, you know, we, we, we can't compete. So we want, you know, an incentive or, or Miller Brewing, you know, Miller Coors down in Milwaukee. The problem is you set a bad precedent if you start doing this for existing companies. Now it doesn't mean you don't necessarily do it. I, I will say this, that this, this is going to have a tough road to hoe, I think, in the in the Senate. Governor Walker is pushing it. He's in favor of this. But 
I, I wonder if you'd be in favor of this candidly if it wasn't an election year. You've got some Democrats, like I say, who represent that area. They're going to be in pressure to vote for it. You've got a number of Republicans who I don't think are going to support this, saying we're starting this huge precedent. I see this as being distinct from Foxconn. I think you're talking about something different. To me, Foxconn... To bring new jobs and to potentially be transformative is one thing. I do think you have to be really, really careful when you're talking about existing employers. And in the case of Kimberly Clark, all right, we went to the union asking concessions. We got some. We didn't get all we wanted. So now we want the taxpayers to pick up their tab for the rest. I just don't think taxpayers can do that. Do I want to see these jobs go away? No, I I don't. But at some point in time, the taxpayers of the state of Wisconsin can't underwrite every existing business that might find itself running into problems. It's 231. This is Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. 236, Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. So very glad to have you with us. Uh, let's see. Leah Vukmir and Kevin Nicholson battled it out this evening. It's their first debate in the Senate Republican primary. Today's TMJ Force, Charles Benson is a moderator. He'll join Gene Miller with a full analysis tomorrow at 721 on Wisconsin's morning news. Be sure to tune in for that. I just, I, I know we spent the entire 12 o'clock hour talking about the death of the Milwaukee police officer yesterday at the hands of the multiple felon. And it's just, it continues to be aggravating. I, I reviewed the guy's record as soon as they released his, his name. Um, Journal Sentinel has the description. The uh, here, Here's the deal. The, the, the suspected shooter, James Copeland, 30 years old, booked on a tentative charge of first-degree intentional homicide. Here's the deal. According to the police chief, Copeland has an extensive criminal record as an adult and a juvenile. Now, of course, because we protect even career criminals, from what they did as a juvenile, we don't really get a chance to know how bad a character this guy was. But here's here's part of the deal. There was an outstanding arrest warrant for Copeland um, from May 18th. And that's the I think that's the warrant that the police were trying to to serve yesterday. They were trying to arrest him. He was charged with possession with intent to deliver heroin, according to court records in the case with the open warrant. Copeland is accused of running from police, first in a car, then on foot. An officer found several plastic bags of heroin and cocaine in the car. All right. 2008, Copeland was found guilty of two counts of being a felon with a gun. He was sentenced to five years in prison and five years of extended supervision. So he was out um, based on the 2008 case. I think he was on parole for that at the time this happened. All right. So 2008. Two years before that, he was convicted of armed burglary and was sentenced to just over a year in prison. Armed burglary, just over a year in prison. And this is somebody with an extensive juvenile record. Uh, Let's see. Court records describe Copeland as taking part in an armed home invasion of a person he knew. He was charged with armed robbery, and then they pled that down to armed burglary. So, again, the picture emerges is one of those what the police chief describes as the 10 percenters, the 10 percent of the criminal class that is responsible for the overriding and overwhelming majority of crime. And in this case, one of those 10 percenters, it's not necessarily unusual that they act out in a violent fashion and hurt someone or kill someone. In this case, it happened to be a Milwaukee police officer that was killed, which again raises these questions about 
Why do we keep turning these dangerous career criminals loose, and why do we put them on the streets? And keep in mind, there's a number of Democrat candidates who are running with a pledge that they want to empty out the prisons. Empty out the prisons. A couple of them, their goal is in four years to have half as many people in Wisconsin prison. Well, the only way you get half as many people in Wisconsin prisons is to release a lot of dangerous people or career criminals and essentially put no career, no prisoners in over the next couple of years. That's the strategy that some of the people that want to replace Scott Walker are running on. All right, CNN. CNN finds itself in the news, and mark the tape on this crew who's producing the show today and always. I think they have a legitimate beef. Now, I am not a fan of CNN. I think CNN is completely and totally in the bag for the anti-Trump forces, just like the New York Times and the Washington Post. I mean, CNN, if they run a 100 stories about President Trump, 98 of them will be negative, and you'll have to work to find any good in the other two. Now, that doesn't mean that they don't have a right to criticize, but I think they're in the bag for the anti-Trump forces. Same thing is true with the New York Times. Same thing is true with the Washington Post. They've become, this is the hate Trump sort of media, uh, which is why, in some respects, he responds as he does. And sometimes his objections miss the mark. Other times, well, they're kind of on point, which is why I always say to the news media, if you don't want to be accused of running fake news, then stop running fake news. So there's no love lost between CNN and the president. He embarrassed CNN about a week ago when they were having that press conference. This was before the Russia meetings. They were having the press conference with the prime minister of Great Britain. And the guy from CNN, who's been you know one of the loudmouths who's constantly trying to run him down, uh, started to ask a question, and President Trump said, no, I, I only take questions from real networks. You're, you're CNN. You're fake news. Okay, so he, he embarrassed him. So CNN doesn't like like that. Well, yesterday, there was an event at the, the White House, and they had a number. What happens is they invite, they can't invite the whole press corps to them. So what they do is they invite a handful of the reporters to be members of the, the uh, to, to be members of a smaller group that will report. They'll be part of the pool and then they'll report what happened to everybody else because you can't have, you know, everybody in there. And there was a CNN reporter um, that was there, um, Caitlin Collins. And apparently um, she was she was asking the president a couple questions. You know, he was there for this meeting with the guy from the European Union that they were going to be talking about how they were going to try to tam- temper down the trade war stuff. And, and she starts asking questions. Did Michael Cohen betray you? Did Michael Cohen betray you? Um, are you worried about what he's about to say to prosecutors? Are you worried about what's on the tapes? So she, she says a couple of these things to him because this is where, you know, the reporters are all kind of shouting out questions, trying to get answers. Most time he, he doesn't. So she asked these questions about Michael Cohen. Well, later on, there was another press availability, and she's whistled in apparently to the uh, press office, and she's told that you're not going to be allowed. You're being disallowed. You're not going to be able to come into the second press conference because we don't like what you did earlier on. And now a number of the other news outlets, including Fox News, interestingly, have risen to their defense. And I'm about to do this as well. And and, and here's, 
Here's why. Do I have any love lost for CNN? No, I, I don't. Do I think they often peddle fake news? Yes, I do. Do they think, do I think they have it in for Donald Trump? Yes, I do. But I think it becomes dangerous when you have politicians, public officials who decide in public sort of situations which, which media outlets they're going to allow in and which they're not going to allow in. And, and maybe, you know, this is a case for Donald Trump, and you understand why he's punishing CNN. He doesn't like CNN, and maybe some of the stuff is deserved. But what about the next time around? And what about the time when it's the liberal president who says, hey, I'm being hounded. I'm being asked tough questions by Fox News. Well, I don't like those kind of questions, so I'm not going to allow you in. It is a very, very slippery slope, and I think the president would be just fine, better off, allow CNN in, ignore them, do whatever, but not block them from coming in because, again, it's a dangerous precedent to go down. The president has no problems finding media outlets to communicate his thoughts with or going around the media with Twitter. I just don't think you should be banning news operations, and like it or not, that's what CNN is. And for conservatives who say to Donald Trump, President Trump, you go get him. You you really showed him. Well, all right, what about Three years from now, if there's a president, Elizabeth Warren, and she again decides that she's not going to allow conservative media outlets to have any sort of view of her administration, and the only prism you're going to get is through the New York Times or the Washington Post or CNN, well, everybody's going to be screaming about that. Just say it. All right, when we come back, how young is too young? Stick around. 245, Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. 247, Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. Okay, let's completely switch stuff up. There, There's a story in the Chicago Tribune that caught my attention. Uh, Gru, who's producing the show today, and always a, a tween. Typically, people, not a teenager, so typically 8, 9, to 12 years old. The estimate is the average tween, and I'm looking at this story, the average teenager spends nine hours per day using technology. The average tween spends six hours a day using technology, not including time spent on media for schoolwork. So this is outside of homework. Six hours a day. Now, that would include TV, looking at the Internet, etc. There is this huge debate going on among parents as to what age is appropriate to get the children started on that technology. And in the story... What it says, it, it quotes some woman who says the majority of, she's she got an 11-year-old, and the majority of her child's friends have had cell phones since they were eight years old. Eight years old. And she's talking about how she's a holdout. Her kid's 11. She's not, she's not getting a cell phone. I, I just, I don't think she needs a cell phone. I'm not giving her one. But I'm the bad mom because I'm not allowing my kid to have a, a cell phone. All right, I thought this would be an interesting conversation. We only have a couple minutes. 414-799-1620. That is the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Do 8-year-olds or 9-year-olds or 10-year-olds, do they need their own cell phones? And if so, why? Is that too young to give somebody a, a cell phone? And why would you be giving an 8- or 9-year-old a, a cell phone? I mean, I, it, it, do they really need it? Um, or are we starting them off too young? Is this just peer pressure? 414-799-1620. That's the Accident Mortgage Talk and Text. And I don't want to sound like 
that that old guy, hey, kids, get off my lawn. I, I'm, I'm really not that guy. But I have to tell you, and this comes from the perspective of somebody who has an 11-year-old nephew who has a number of friends who have children ranging in ages between like 7 and 11, that, that whole tween thing. Call me old-fashioned, but I think it's nuts capital N, capital U, capital T, capital S, to be talking about giving an 8-year-old a cell phone. I mean, seriously, what does an 8-year-old need a cell phone with? For 414-799-1620, what do you think? 414-799-1620, 8 years old. Is that too young to, um, is that too young for a cell phone? My answer would be, yeah, Gru is lining up the calls right now. D- do we really need it? Are we starting them out too young? 414-799-1620, that is the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. I just don't understand why people would need to do it at that young an age. High school, I get. Maybe maybe the upper levels of middle school, but eight years old or nine years old, um, if that were my kid, the answer would be I'd be with like this lady in the Chicago Tribune saying, no, it's just not going to happen. Tyler in Oconomowoc. Tyler, you're first. Hello. How's it going, Jeff? Real well, thank you. I uh, I agree with you. It's way too young. There's there's too much stuff that people can download that kids don't know how to turn off the device locations. And next thing you know, you got predators looking, finding out where they're at. Right. Well, or they just playing on the. I mean, I just don't understand why you would need a cell phone at that young an age. I mean, you're you with. Don't. You're right. You're you're going to be in the company of your parents, the company of other adults. It's it's not like in high school where hey, the practice got canceled. I need to call mom or dad to pick me up sooner. I mean, what is an eight year old seriously going to do with a cell phone other than use it to play on the internet or play games or whatever? I was just going to say, all they're going to do is rack up your bill when uh, <laughs> when they download a game and all of a sudden they want tokens. Um, right. No, th- no, right. Exactly. That's it. No, th- thanks for the call. I mean, I, I just, I, I'm not that old man. I'm not that guy. I just don't think there's any reason for an eight-year-old to have a cell phone. And this story talks about how she's the mean mom because she's saying no to her 11-year-old. Brian in Manitowoc. Brian, you're on WTMJ. Hi. Hi, Brian. Yeah. Hi there. See, you know... No, should they have that phone all the time, carry a phone around? Absolutely not. But if I'm going to drop my child off, let's say I'm going to drop him off to go roller skating, a 10-year-old, or maybe uh, at, the, at the fair, or maybe uh, they can let me know they're going to be picked up. I know they're safe, but am I going to let them walk around with it? Uh, Eddie, absolutely not. I think, Jeff, I don't know what you thought there, but something like that might be uh, something to consider. Well, I guess, I mean, thank, but at the same time, you're not, I'm not going to allow a 10-year-old to wander around unaccompanied at the at, at a fair, county fair or otherwise. I mean, I'm just I'm not going to drop off a 10-year-old with just their friends and let them run loose. I mean, there there is a certain age. I mean, I, I get See, I understand once you hit the, once you get to be a teenager, okay, maybe that's dynamic. You know, the middle school, all right, if you're okay, I'm trying to think, you know, if you're 12 or 13, you know, that to me, that's that's about the age where I think it, it starts to kick in. I mean, I, I, I think 12 or 13, I would actually like to say high school, but maybe you can make some of the arguments about middle school. But those of us who are talking about this, I will tell you, we are fighting the stream of history because the word is now it's eight years old or you're the mean parent. 
I just don't get it. When we come back, we're going to find out what John and Melissa have on their minds for Wisconsin's Afternoon News. Please stick around. It's 254. This is Jeff Wagner, WTMJ.